Maeve Higgins recommends her home base of County Cork as a great place to spend time in Ireland. What I would say about Cork, and this is fact, it's the biggest county. Again, facts, the most beautiful women are from Cork. And again, facts, the best storytellers and the most gorgeous stout. We'll also explore the seaside beauty of the counties of Cornwall and Devon on the southwest tip of England. Beautiful fishing villages, very ancient fishing villages, thousands of years old, some of them. You feel as if you're walking two or three centuries ago. And we'll get a taste of the working-class charm that gives Scotland's biggest city its friendly edge. Glasgow's famous for the Glasgow humour, the Glasgow patter. We do like to say that in Glasgow you'll have a better time at a funeral than you'll have at a wedding in Edinburgh. Come along for the hour ahead as hometown guides share different slices of the Celtic world from Glasgow and the deep south of Ireland and England. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Irish-born comedian Maeve Higgins has hometown advice for enjoying the best of the old sod in County Cork in a minute. And guides from Scotland and England share insider tips for fun times in Glasgow and the scenic southwest counties of Devon and Cornwall. That's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. She was just another one of the girls from a large Catholic family in a small town in Ireland's County Cork. And from that springboard, she moved to America and is having a grand old time exploring her place in the world. Maeve Higgins has been making waves with her starring roles in the movie Extraordinary and the play Autumn Royal, both set in her home turf, a little outside of Cork City. She's also written a book called Tell Everyone on This Train That I Love Them to share her views from New York City during the pandemic. Maeve Higgins joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to give us some insider perspectives on what we should look for next time we're in the south of Ireland. Maeve, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. And this is one of my favorite subjects. That's great because you left Cork for New York City and now you're, Mm -hmm. you're settling in our country, but you've got deep roots in the old country. Tell us, first of all, how much of your life did you live in the south of Ireland and when were you back most recently? Well, I grew up there, so most of my childhood. And then I suppose I left for Dublin, which is what a lot of us end up doing, uh, when I was 17. And then I was most recently back there the summer of 2021. And I spent a lot of time in Cork and particularly West Cork. So Cork is the, it's the county in the south of yeah. Ireland, and it's also the major city in the south of Ireland. That's right, yeah. When you said you were in Dublin in your late teen years, I bet you went to Croke Park for a hurling match. I've been to Croke Park, yeah, for a match. It's a mm-hmm. huge stadium, and I went there as a kid, and I still hear this shrill yelling in my ear of people from Kilkenny. Go oh. Kilkenny! Go <laughs> Kilkenny! And I was reminded Ireland's a small island of just three or four million people, I guess. And you've packed that Croke Park at a hurling match. That's the sort of the national pastime of Ireland. And the passions and the pride of the counties just rings out. Talk about the passion of different counties. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as you said, it's a tiny place, but we have, you know, different accents. We have all these ludicrous kind of... (laughs) claims that we make about our own. I mean, what I would say about Cork, and this is fact, it's the biggest county. Again, facts, the most beautiful women are from Cork. And again, facts, the best storytellers and the most gorgeous stout. I know you're a Guinness <laughs> drink, but we have Murphy's. No, Murphy's. I'm a Murphy's drinker, actually. Oh, excellent. Because in our previous conversations, you've mentioned Guinness and I've really held my tongue. 
Um, ah. <laughs> but the thing is, if you grow up somewhere like Cork, certainly the brewery, there's this kind of the smell, right? The kind of chocolatey, hoppy smell. So even before you're of drinking age, it's kind of like part of the fabric of the city. Oh, let's talk about Cork. You grew up in Cove, which is kind of a, a little town right next to Cork. But I would imagine the big city for you was Cork. Yes, I mean, we would go to Cork to see the Christmas lights and we'd go to Cork on our birthdays to visit, you know, McDonald's, that little huh. that little mom and pop restaurant that came from McDonald's. America. McDonald's, that was a big deal in, in Ireland because I know that was a big deal in Eastern Europe when it arrived, but that's... Oh, I, I mean, it was huge in Ireland in the 80s. And I, that's also the reason why, you know, these first cities like Dublin and, you know, like, it, yes, it has a lot to offer, but it also has a lot of Starbucks and hotels. And right. Cork is, you know, it has this beautiful, fresh food market. You can walk the whole city. It has a butter museum, for goodness sake. I mean, first of all, butter is the best substance known to man. And then there's a whole museum devoted to it. And you can, it, this is a good example, the Bells of Shandon. So you can, right near the butter museum and near the old sweet factory, you can go up in the church in Shandon and you can ring the bells yourself. They still let tourists go up. I think it costs like three euro and you go up and you can ring them away and it, it just bangs out over the whole city. It's so much fun. It's quite dangerous, <laughs> but it's brilliant. And, you know, it hasn't been uh, sort of it's not busy enough and it hasn't been kind of taken over um, right. commercially, you know. You know, you made a very good insight, and that's talking about how a big city like Dublin would have that more global flavor, that uh, a lot of chain stores, a lot of uh, relative affluence. And then when you go out into the country, you find uh, towns that are, are more purely local, and Cork on the south coast would be that, and Cove, the town where you grew up. And, you know, when I was in Cove, I was really struck by how much history has happened right there. Uh, Cove has this wonderful heritage center that uh, talks about emigration and the Irish famine. And then you've got the Titanic's last stop in 1912 was in Cove. Queen Victoria, whose first step in Ireland was, was it Cove or was it Cork? Yeah, that's right. It was, um, I think she sailed past Cove and that's why Cove used to be called Queenstown, actually. Oh, okay. um, Because of Queen Victoria's visit. So you're right. It's a very historic place. It's so small. It's an island in Cork Harbour. And it's a port. So it's where, you know, actually millions, two million people left. And you mentioned earlier, the entire population of Ireland is four million, the Republic. So two, So when people left Ireland, they, they generally left then through the port on the south coast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And these were in the worst years of, you know. During the famine and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, this was over time. But yeah, literally millions, millions left. And then you go to these heritage centers, Maeve, and they are really thoughtfully done. So if you want to learn about the emigration, if you want to learn about the, the Irish famine and the coffin ships and all of that, it's beautifully, beautifully presented in these various museums in the little town of Cove. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I remember going as a little girl to the heritage center and uh, I was terrified because they have a real a reenactment of a coffin ship, which were you know, the ships that people used oh, yeah. to um, make these terrible journeys across the Atlantic. Sometimes they'd live, often they wouldn't. And so I was, you know, six years old, traipsing through this uh, you know, coffin ship, like, well, what's wrong with that man? Oh, <laughs> um, and they have these people that are role playing. So you walk yes, in there. I've been to that yes. same, uh, there's a there's a coffin ship that tourists go to now. and And it takes you 
right back. It's, it's fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Irish-born comedian and writer Maeve Higgins. Her latest book of observations is called Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. She's also written Maeve in America, essays by a girl from somewhere else. And you'll see her byline on columns in the New York Times and the Irish Times. Maeve posts to Twitter at Maeve Higgins. That's M-A-E-V-E. And she's with us today to talk about her homeland and her hometown in County Cork in the south of Ireland. Maeve, when I'm in Ireland, I often find myself thinking about what they call thin places. And thin places is kind of like a a notion that the atmosphere is thinner and you're closer to heaven. And it can be in a pagan, pre-Christian way, or it can be in a way uh, when, the, when Christianity came to Ireland and it was known as the Isle of Saints and Scholars, back when Europe was in what a lot of people called the Dark Ages, and it was just rutting in the mud and almost illiterate. Uh, there, were, there were thoughtful people and there was lots of culture and lots of uh, activity going on in the monastic communities of Ireland. Talk a little bit about thin places in the Emerald Isle. Yeah, I think they're hard to describe, but when you feel them, you really feel them. And to me, it feels a little bit like it's something, it's like a all of these layers that make up our consciousness, the, the way we're alive. And it's sort of when you feel this little pull or you get this little glimpse into something much more vast and much less literal. Mm. Um, and I've experienced them in other parts of the world too, I don't know how related it is to any particular religion, but it does feel spiritual for sure. You feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it is the oddest thing, but I feel that way in corners of Ireland. Like there's pilgrimage spots. What is it? Crow Patrick, where people Crow for Patrick, centuries where you climb up the mountain and yeah. some people don't wear their shoes. And yeah. yeah. And then, of course, in Ireland, in, especially in the west and the south of Ireland, it's like an open air folk museum with megalithic sites and, and mysterious stone structures from ancient times and and there's these what do they call them uh, fairy trees or fairy castles oh, like, or something yeah that's right i mean some so it's a blend isn't it of um very real things i remember i was on bear island which is this most gorgeous island off castletown bear again in west cork and there was these you know ancient wedge tombs right, just in a right. field just sheep grazing around it and you know it's a physical thing that's there that you and can't help they, but feel and the irish people even like engineers sent out from Dublin with a job to do a road to build. They go, oh, no, no, we're not going to violate that fairy castle there. <laughs> and they'll they'll make the road kink around that well. uh, strange little spot, that holy well. Sometimes there's a well that is really a special place. Yeah, and so that's, it's difficult to parse out, you know, what is superstition and then what is genuinely, you know, I mean, it's difficult for me because I'm not an expert, but I right. really do think it's worth preserving um folk wisdom and indigenous wisdom and that we can actually learn a lot from it and I sometimes have to fight back my own skepticism of things like that and Mm -hmm. certainly being there physically and feeling it and putting yourself in those situations is a beautiful thing. This is what your specialty is is taking these perspectives and I'm just wondering I've always thought you learn a lot about your own country by leaving it and looking at it from a distance what kind of perspective does leaving Ireland give you about your, your homeland now that you've lived for 10 years in New York? Yeah, I mean, I do think I have some clarity now about where Ireland fits in and what growing up in Ireland, how it formed me. And I suppose it's kind of a funny blend of pride and then also 
an understanding of like how small we are. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, there would be pride and there also would be a little bit of humbleness to yeah. see that, oh, if you're ethnocentric <laughs> in Ireland, you really have a small world. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I think that so much of the success of Ireland, even as an idea, has been the people that have left and have blended into other cultures and, and gained strength from teaming up with their new neighbours and their new communities wherever they ended up, you know, because Irish people went all over the place, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Well, Maeve Higgins, uh, the book is Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them, and your other book, Maeve in America. Just congratulations on how you're contributing to our better understanding, not only of Ireland, but of ourselves. Well, thank you. I really enjoy our conversations, Rick. I appreciate you. Take care, Maeve. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Besides her gig as a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Maeve Higgins also performs stand-up Monday nights in Brooklyn, New York with the comedy trio Butter Boy. And she explores feminist solutions to climate change on the podcast Mothers of Invention. There's more with Maeve in an extra to today's show. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. It's a straight shot from the Cork coastline to the southwest peninsula of England. We'll hear about the attractions of Cornwall and Devon in a minute. And we'll wind up the hour in Scotland's dynamic city of Glasgow on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. There's one notorious town in Wales that has, like, the longest name of any town in Europe, I think. Oh, you'll you, be referring to a land by a post-wingish. Will you not, Rick? <laughs> That's one word? That's one word. Say it again. That must be a bunch of words. If you translated it literally, what would it mean, Martin? Oh, gosh. I mean, you're asking me now. The Church of St. Mary, White Hazel, Rapid Pool, Red Cave of the Blessed Cilio, so on. They must have a short name for that town. Yeah, Shanva. <laughs> or Shanva PG if you live on Anglesey. Ask any Brit, and they'd jump at the chance for a week in the southwest of England. It's where Cornwall is sprinkled with intimate coastal towns all the way to Land's End as it points to the open waters of the Celtic Sea. Right next door is Devon, with more spectacular coastline. The Bristol Channel is north, the English Channel to the south, with seaside attractions in Plymouth and Torquay, and even a national park in the middle. The two counties of southwest England are home territory for tour guides Tom Hooper and Mark Seymour. Gentlemen, welcome. You're Thank very you welcome. for having Thank us. Thank you. So we're thinking about Devon and Cornwall. Mark, you're from Devon. What is Devon? Talk about how do we know where that is. Devon is one of those uh, highland areas of Britain, uh, ancient part of Britain, famous for its uh, uh, roaming ponies. It's famous for a very, very rural population. So we're a highland part. You're talking about high country. High country. Are there um, moors and sort of vast medieval commons beautiful, grounds? Beautiful moors, Dartmoor. Dartmoor uh, is in Devon. Wild ponies. Wild ponies roaming everywhere. Lots roaming of everywhere. poets looking for inspiration. Clotted cream, apple pie. There you go. So it's a, sort of a charming traditional part, uh, cozy. Yes. yes. And of course, um, to the north of the county, you have beautiful fishing villages, very ancient fishing villages, thousands of years old, some of them. Okay, it, so that's on the, on the coast, just a little south of Wales. Literally opposite the south coast of Wales on the other side of the Severn Estuary. Right. And if you want to get there from London to go to Devon, how long does it take by train? You'd have to take the train down to the south coast of Devon, uh, where there's a major uh, railway terminal called Exeter. 
And that would take you, without connections, about two and a half to three hours. And if you're driving from Heathrow Airport to get to Devon? Uh, again, you take the motorway due west, and that could take you upwards of four and a half, five hours. So we're four hours or so away from London to get yes, to Devon. Yes. All right. Tom, what about Cornwall? Well, Cornwall is even beyond that. Uh, it's the very southwest of England, and the boundary between Cornwall and that other place, Devon, <laughs> is the River Tamar. And it used to be said, you know, that you'd have to show your passport when you went across into Cornwall. Is that right? Because it's, it was, because it's so different. It was once its own country before it was swallowed by England. It has its own language, which is now even taught in schools. It's an old Celtic refuge in the very far, almost remotest southwest corner. So when you think of the Celtic Crescent, describe the Celtic Crescent. I think this is a fascinating concept. Uh, it's, it's, it is this far coastal area where you go from Brittany, traveling across then to Cornwall, up through Wales and Ireland and up to Scotland. So it's a, a crescent of civilizations yes. that encircled the Angles. Uh, absolutely, and civilizations is the right word. <laughs> so when you're thinking about the English map, the far southwest tip of England is Land's End. Now, Land's End is one of these horrible tourist traps, really. Uh, describe Land's End if you're I think you've understated that, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has this extraordinary romantic image that you are going to the edge of the world. And then you get there, and you have the last this, you have the last that. So here's the last mm. place to get your mm. tea, the last place to fill yeah. up your tank. Yeah. And when you've had 2,000 last this, you then pay to park your car. Pay to park your car. Yeah. And there's a man with a camera that will, you can pay to have your picture taken. Correct. Wait in line with all the other tour groups. Very theme park. It is theme parky, isn't it? It is. But um, uh, and if you want that feeling of Land's End, but not to deal with all of that, where might you go in well, Cornwall? I go to the Lizard Peninsula, which is just one before it. It's raw, remote, very attractive, fantastic, rocky coastline, mm -hmm. which makes it perfect. So if you go to Lizard, you can feel like you're on Land's End. You can feel like you're on Land's Good End. enough, mm. good enough. Now, let's talk a little bit about Doc Martin, because a lot of people love this Doc Martin special, and we've had him on our show. He's just a delightful guy, and he's set in a, an actual town. His Port Wen in the show is actually Port Isaac. Do either of you have any tips for Doc Martin fans when they're going to that part of England? Um, it's a very, very small fishing town, and it's perched between two very steep headlands. Um, you can't really drive down into the town. There are a number of car parks uh, on the headlands looking down into the village. Be careful. It is extremely steep. Um, certainly, some of the crowds become very, 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 very busy. So it's quite an industry for this cute little it's port. Isaac. Suddenly, an industry it's, overnight. Yes. it's like Hollywood. It's and, a and beautiful portable. place to visit, particularly if you're a walker. I would imagine you could just travel around in the countryside and find the charm of Doc Martin yes. without going to Port Isaac. Yes, yes. many ports, it's, many ports around the right. southwest. It is on, it's on the north coast, so it does have you know, Tintagel. Now, and, speaking of the north coast and Tintagel, this for me is one of the most romantic places. Uh, Tom, what's the importance historically of Tintagel and how might we enjoy that? Well, Tintagel is associated hugely with the legends of Arthur. King Arthur. King Arthur, because there is this suggestion that this might have been Camelot. Camelot, whoa. And there's a, a, a ruined castle, now, the, actually. That, They're quite dramatically there set. there is a really dramatic ruined castle. It's quite a scramble down and up to it with the steps, and it has this mystical feeling about it, which adds to the Arthur legends. Now, when you go to Tintangel, there's there's plenty of uh, gimmicky outfits that want your money. I, I had a beer in a place called the Excali Bar. 
The yes. Excalibur. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and the beer was pretty good, wasn't it? Yes. The beer was good. I guess that's even in Tristan Valley beer, Doombar yes. beer, yeah. So the Excalibur in Tintagel. This is Travel Trixties. We've been talking with Tom Hooper and Mark Seymour about Devon and Cornwall, two beautiful parts of England on the southwest corner of that great country. Near Tintagel is a little town called Clovelly. Now, Clovelly. this is one of the cutest places I've ever seen. Talk about Clovelly. Um, Clovelly is this seaside um, on North Coast town where it's steep down to it. It has stone streets. You feel as if you're walking two, three centuries ago. The fact that they stop cars going down to it actually adds to its character. In summer, it is a riot of colour with flowers and people's window boxes and gardens. And it is the archetypal, picturesque... It's, it's an amazing place. Um, let's take a step back in time. This is a fishing village. Um, there's a quay that sweeps out into the ocean, into the deep ocean. Um, 700-foot-high cliffs surrounding key the Quay meaning uh, breakwater of some I think sort Americans of... would say quay, Q-U-A-Y, okay. breakwater, okay. Uh, yes, uh, yes. A dock, a pier. And the fishermen historically have brought the fish in, their catch into the quay. They would then take it by sled up through the village. That's how the, steep the hills are. That's mm-hmm. how steep they are. The, uh, the roadways made of pebbles. The stone buildings are made of pebbles. These are big, rolling, football-sized rocks, circular. And, and the government has recognized this miraculously mm. preserved, impossibly cute little town and yeah. stopped anybody from changing any of That's their right. buildings. That's and now right. there's lots of flowers and yes. cute little pubs. And it's still actually owned. The entire village is still owned by a, a, a lord. Um, really? A little touch of the feudal system is owned by uh, the lord of Clavelli. He lives still on the estate and the people that live in the village live there because he allows them to. Now, is this in Cornwall? This is actually in North Devon. North Devon. So this yes, is Devon. This, this is Devon, yeah. Tintagel? Tintagel's very firmly Cornwall. So, and there's the river between the yeah, two then. Yeah. What is same the name coast, of the river again? Same coast. Right. It's the Tamar, T-A-M-A-R. Tamar. One of the greatest and most famous rivers in the world. So we're in Clovelly, the impossibly cute little town on the north coast of Devon, and then into the interior of Devon. And Mark, you mentioned Devon is high country. We've got what is one of my favorite evocative places, and it is Dartmoor. Mm. Uh, describe mm. exploring Dartmoor. What sort of charms wait for us in Dartmoor? Dartmoor is a, is a marvelous place. Imagine a, a highland plateau, and then dotted over it are stack formations, rock pointing out of the ground. These are the cores of ancient volcanoes. A uh, number of them very, very, very prominent on the landscape. No trees, no trees to speak of at all. Some very, very deep valleys carved by tiny rivulets and streams. Lush turf, though. I mean, it just feels like... Peaty turf, yes. It feels like a Tolkien kind of dream in some kind of way. Heather and gorse. And it comes with a particular smell, that turf as well. Mm. When you have the hike on Dartmoor, it is this sweeping, quite windy, desolate landscape with these granite remains of this volcanic batholith Mm. all around you. And you've got these... Reminders of early civilization. Yes. All over, you yes, come yeah. upon clapper bridges yeah. and stone yeah. circles. Can you talk about some of the discoveries? What's a clapper bridge and uh, what might cla- we see? Clapper bridge, uh, they vary in age, but many of them, uh, several of them certainly date back to the Iron Age. Um, there is one that they have uh, dated back to the Neolithic. Uh, so Iron Age being what century would that uh, be? Iron Age would be, uh, you're looking before the Roman invasion of Britain, uh, okay, 800 so years before. Up to about 600-ish before. 600 B.C., yeah. Clapper bridges, and these would yes. be stepping stone bridges across yeah. the and little rivers. Which you, say, can, go back to you, know, which you can do yourself. You can walk over these clapper and bridges. And then you might come upon your own private Stonehenge. Stone circle. Yeah. Yes. Stone yeah. circle. There's yeah. a, uh, near Gidley. Yes, Gidley is one of 16 
Stone Circles, actually oh, on Dartmoor. I hiked from the youth hostel in Gidley out into the middle of Dartmoor, following my little ordnance survey map yeah, to yeah, the Stone yeah. Circle of Gidley. Yes. And I was all alone there with yes. a few sheep and the wild wind. And, and, and the, please don't anybody think that it's uh, this is another Stonehenge or another Avery. These are stones that barely come up to your knee in some places. But they know, go but back it's, it's just as old, and they're a yes. circle designed to be a celestial special. calendar. Yeah. And uh, you don't have the barbed wire and the tour buses and the portaloos. You've just got the winds it's of the past. It's all to yourself. And the walking, of course, to get there is spectacular. I'm so impressed by the, the many layers of history and culture here. And, and there, there actually was a, a tin industry mm. in, in Cornwall. It really goes way, way back. I think the ancient Greeks actually even called uh, Cornwall and North Devon uh, the land of mm. tin. The land yeah. of tin. And you can actually see some old tin mines. Yeah, Giver is the most famous probably. Mm. It's now almost a shrine to tin mining. There are no tin mines left working anymore. But if you go back 200 years to the heyday, it was the big time of tin mining. And you can go down to the mine itself. And the workers used to take the famous Cornish pasty to lunch, didn't they? What what is the... Why did you hesitate over the pronunciation (laughs) of that word? (laughs) I don't know how to say it in English. (laughs) Pasty, pasty. Pasty. Pasty, pasty. If you you come from Devon, it will be pasty. 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 But But, but there's a practical reason. I mean, we know this pasty is like a folded over pizza or something like that with a crimped edge. Yeah. And tell us the the connection with the miners. Well, the, the connection is that this was the food that they took down to have which they'd eat almost certainly in darkness because the candles were too expensive to burn them during a spare time, so almost certainly in darkness. And it's a bit like a, a beef stew, Rick, mm. which mm. is cooked in pastry with a crimped top to it, and the crimp is so easy to hold that that's part of it. And you have one bit which is the savoury bit originally and one bit which is the sweet bit, the So you dessert. have your dessert kind of yeah, cooked yeah. into this... Uh, this and, and of course, because in those days you'd have all this toxic stuff on your hands, then that means you discard the pastry paper. So you throw away the crust that you hung on yeah. to. Yeah. That is so well, actually, I think you did more than that, if I remember right. You threw it down one of the shafts for good luck. And to this day, you can go to a little bakery in Cornwall. Absolutely. There's, mm. there's one at Giva, and there's a, another very good pasty place at Senon. And there are places where you can actually now go and have a two-hour course. Delightful. And make Delightful your own Delightful lunch or, or light dinner, yeah. yeah. Cornwall and Devon, two counties on the southwest tip of England, is the home turf for our guides on Travel with Rick Steves. Mark Seymour organizes small group tours of Britain on his website at seymourtravels.co.uk. Tom Hooper can be reached through the Great British Tours Facebook site. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Linda's calling in from Marietta in Georgia. Linda, thanks for your call. Thank you, Mr. Rick Steves. I'm delighted to be on this. Well, great. Do you have a, a story to tell about your experiences in Cornwall or a question for our guides? I do. I just absolutely was astounded and uh, emotional to visit the Minnick Theater and see the incredible location and what was carved into the cliff uh, there in Penzance. It was probably the pinnacle of my trip, even though I also went to Port Isaac, and I love Doc Martin so much, but uh, the theater is not to be missed so at all. Can you, um, Tom or, or Mark, can you describe what Linda is referring to here? Well, Linda's referring to an open-air carved theater right on the coast, isn't it, Linda? Yes, these, it is. With these uh-huh. f- fabulous views down to the sea and the rocks. 
and during the summer there are performances during the day and in the evening they rarely cancel them. Huh. It looks like a, a, a miniature Romano-Greek theatre or amphitheatre looking out Carved to the Carved out of the rock with a dramatic yeah. setting on the south coast, rain or shine, yeah, you're going to have your event. They very rarely cancel turf seats mm-hmm. predominantly. So, Linda, you're a good example of a tourist who might be a fan of Doc Martin and go to that part of England and find there's a lot more charms um, beyond Port Isaac. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more about Land's End. I thought when we pulled into the car park that we were stopping at an outlet mall. I couldn't believe uh, it either. That's what I felt. It sounds like an outlet mall. It really feels that way. So we can save people a long drive to Land's End, I'd say. Right. Yes. I think you get what you expect at Land's End at the Minnick Theater. It's yeah, all so there's beautiful. A, there's, a, there's a lovely cove next, very close to called Senan as well, which yes. is very similar. Yes, beautiful walking. Linda, thanks so much for your call. And Thank we'll, we'll you, be sure Rick. to put Minnick so Theater on our list. Okay, you. bye now. Bye bye. Chris is calling in from Valencia, California. Chris, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Um, listen to what you had to say. I have frequented many of the places you've talked about, and I traveled to Cornwall on two different trips. And each time, a highlight for me was a day hike along the southwest coast path. It's along the cliff side going down the coast. So on one side, you have the sea and the coast and these little hidden beaches. And the other side, you have farmland, and sometimes you're walking into people's, you step up and over the fence across people's land, just so that you can sort of ramble across the country. And you say ramble, and there's actually a Ramblers Association, Association, isn't there? And uh, Tom, talk about the um, feisty attitude of the Ramblers about free access to the land. Well, this is across the country, and the Ramblers Association are the guardians of the public footpath and bridleway network. And every single year, without fail, there will be a day when people are invited basically to go on one mass, almost trespass. So the mass trespass. Yeah, to make sure these footpaths continue to be used, that's number one. And two, they log any obstructions that are illegal. And your call in doing this is is asserting the right to walk that path. There you go, Chris. You're part of the Rambler's Mass Trespass. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about the Southwest Coast Path. Uh, is it in Cornwall or mm-hmm. Devon and Cornwall? It actually starts um, in uh, a place called Thornbury in Gloucestershire, yes, which is uh, the to the down. northeast of uh, Devon. It's actually 600, I'll get my numbers right, 683 miles of marked footpaths. So you go geologically through lots of different geological structures mm-hmm. and you get the very rugged bit around Devon and Cornwall. Yes, certainly in Devon and Cornwall, northern parts of Devon and Cornwall, you have some of the highest cliffs in Europe. Mm. Seven, eight hundred foot high cliffs. And this footpath... Plunging right down to the sea? Yeah. Or straight down. So you could make a, a day trip from some uh, convenient little town, or you could yeah. do a multi-day yeah. walk with Absolutely. plenty of B&Bs along the yeah. way. I, I have a favourite. People I do, do it. do it yes. quite frequently. A little place called Heartland, which is about seven miles across the coast from uh, Clovelly. Uh, there's a beautiful white lighthouse perched on a headland. Yes. Uh, again, in ancient key, nobody lives there anymore. The, the village of Heartland is a little bit further inland. But oh, okay, so the southwest coast. Pa- I was thinking the south coast, but it's really the southwest. southwest. So it's yeah. from Gloucestershire yeah. up by Wales, and then and right down along the coast, all the way yeah. through through Devon yeah. and Cornwall to Lansdowne. As, as it happens, I have to accept Heartland Point is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. In Thank Devon, Tom. <laughs> yeah. no, there we've got we've we've come <laughs> it, to an it, agreement. It is here. a gem, isn't it, Tom? <laughs> it is, is a gem. Chris. Thanks for your call. Great, thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mark Seymour from Devon and Tom Hooper from Cornwall. We've enjoyed a little bit of the spirit between these two shires, or I guess, uh, is Devon? Devon is actually a shire, Devon right? is a shire. And Tom, what is Cornwall? A country. 
<laughs> the struggling <laughs> underdog <laughs> country yeah. of Cornwall. We struggle. Lots to see and do in Devon and in Cornwall. Tom and Mark, thank you so much for giving us all a better understanding of, of the diversity and the charms of the southwest of England. Well, thank you for asking us. Thank you very much. Let's head north next to Scotland's biggest city, Glasgow. It's a mostly friendly rival to the nearby capital of Edinburgh, but its sister cities include Pittsburgh, Bethlehem, and even Havana in Cuba. Scottish tour guides, take your calls at 877-333-RICK as we get to know Glasgow next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's long been thought of as a rougher second choice to the elegant Scottish capital of Edinburgh. But Glasgow has been the economic engine of Scotland since the Industrial Revolution first blackened its skies. It was also home to major figures in the Scottish Enlightenment and a key shipping port for clipper ships to America. Today, its post-industrial era vibe, renovated waterfront, and fanatic sports fans makes Glasgow a city worth getting to know. To help us better appreciate Glasgow, we're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by Elizabeth Lister. Liz lives a little northeast in the town of Fife and co-hosts the Scottish Blethers podcast when she's not leading tours. Colin Mares grew up in Glasgow. He divides his time now between Scotland and New Zealand. There's reverse seasons for winter, you know. And he proudly wears the family tartan kilt when leading visitors around his homeland. Colin, Liz, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. So... Colin, mm-hmm. you've been in Glasgow all your life. Why all of a sudden are people taking Glasgow so seriously, as far as American tourism goes, anyways? Well, Glasgow's really a, a hip and happening city. Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh is the obvious tourist city, and you've got all the things right there on your plate when you go to visit Edinburgh. But Glasgow, you've got to scratch the surface, and then you really get to find some of the real It's a little rough. Scotland, I think. Um, it has a rough reputation. But with that roughness also comes a friendliness. It's uh, people that are hardworking people and they've had a hard past. They've been, it's been an industrial city. Now it's come through that and it's got that, that gritty vibe and it's, it's cool. Liz, I think of you more in the Edinburgh area. Uh, how would you compare Edinburgh and Glasgow? Well, although it's more the Edinburgh area that I focus on now, when I was growing up, my grandparents lived just outside Glasgow. So much of my young, early years were Glasgow. I think Glasgow's famous for the Glasgow humour, the Glasgow patter. Mm. Patter. Patter, okay. yeah. Um, whereas Edinburgh is much more refined. You can uh, psychoanalyse it a little bit. If, I, I think a, a person in uh, Glasgow would brag about what, what soccer team they relate to, and in Edinburgh, what would they... They talk about which school they've got the children signed <laughs> which up Which school to. they've got the kids signed yeah. up for. But these are very much stereotypes. We have yeah. to realise that Glasgow is made up of many, many districts and areas, as is Edinburgh. Yeah. So the overarching stereotype is that Edinburgh is a much wealthier city. But Glasgow, a merchant city, a lot of wealth. They say Glaswegians wear their wealth on their back. You know, so they're very much into their bling and their fancy mm-hmm. clothes. Whereas Edinburgh, they're much more about um, saving up for the kids' education. Mm. Oh, now, that's interesting. Well, well, Edinburgh has the the bank and the government and, and lots of important institutions. But mm. Colin, Glasgow, how, how powerful was the uh, shipyards on the River Clyde in Glasgow at its peak? Uh, once upon a time, it was, I think, 50% of the world's ocean-going ships were Something like that, a huge percent of yeah. the ships at sea were all coming from Glasgow. Yeah, Clyde built was the Clyde is the river. Clyde built. And that meant that was a sign of quality ships if it was Clyde so built. So when, when we talk about the character of the Glaswegians, what's an example of some of the colour or the character of the people of Glasgow? Well, we do like to say that in Glasgow you'll have a better time at a funeral 
then you'll have a wedding in Edinburgh. Whoa, that really sounds <laughs> <So, laughs> <That's laughs> we, we know how to make the make the best of a, of a bad situation, not a good well, situation. It's but, a, you know, there's a lot of rust belt cities yeah. that were industrial powerhouses that hit the yeah. doldrums, and now they're coming back. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. And there's some great new museums in Glasgow, uh, yeah. new cultural attractions, uh, yeah. the West End, full of uh, places to eat and, and, and lively evening entertainment. So. Yeah, so Glasgow's also a UNESCO city of music. Edinburgh is a UNESCO city of literature, and so Edinburgh is maybe a little bit more bookish, whereas Glasgow is hip and happening, and the music vibe is you're hearing music all throughout the city. I can hear a little bit of a, a difference in your dialects. Uh, Liz, how do you characterize the dialect between Glasgow and Edinburgh? Well, as I say, Glasgow is famous for the Glasgow patter. If you are visiting Glasgow, they'll understand what you're saying because they're used to films and television. When you try to interpret the Glasgow dialect, it can be very difficult. There's very distinct dialect. A Glaswegian is called a Ouija, and Ouija is both a noun and an adjective. So our bus driver, one of our bus drivers I work with, is called Ouija John because he's a Glaswegian. Now, John is broad, broad Glasgow dialect. And so I have one occasion where I'm sitting at dinner with John and I tend to just go into the local vernacular and uh, my tour members are sitting watching and when John gets up and leaves and they say, were you speaking Gaelic, Liz? (laughs) (laughs) And you're speaking English. I'm speaking English. Uh, So they have a tendency to reduce expressions to one word. Uh, So if a a Glaswegian or a Ouija wants to ask you how you are, they'll say, all right, that's how are you. Ah, Are you all right? Are you all right? All right. All right. How's it going? And then they tend to add on some sort of physical characteristic like, all right, big man, (laughs) all right, wee man. (laughs) And then you have other ones like Giza. What would that be? So that's give me a, which goes to give us a, which gives Giza. So then they'll run it together to give you, gonna Giza a swally of your ginger. And what is that? Are you going to, gonna Giza, give us, swallow, and in Glasgow, they don't call soda, soda or lemonade. They call it either ginger or juice. So are you going to give us a, a swallow of your soda pop? Are you going to give us a drink of your soda pop? <laughs> and say it again in Glaswegian. <laughs> going to give us a swallow of your ginger. You sound like you have fun saying that. I do, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an example of Glasgow humour. They are yeah. famous for it. They're voted the friendliest people in the world. You know, it doesn't surprise me. I had a great time when I was in Glasgow, and I've been in Glasgow with both of you. And, and uh, Colin, last time we were in Glasgow, uh, you made a point about the um, the enthusiasm of the uh, soccer fans mm-hmm. and, and how it's two sort of... I mean, things are changing, of course, but mm. if you go historically, there's two rival teams yeah. that Glaswegians yeah, uh, really ally nice. themselves with, yeah. one or the other. Do a little psychoanalysis, uh, socioeconomic. Yeah. So the two big soccer teams are Rangers and Celtic. Uh-huh. Generally, the people that follow Rangers will be of a Protestant background, and then uh-huh. the Cath- uh, Celtic are generally Catholic. So I actually started off with the Celtic were founded by an Irish Catholic priest. He was trying to raise money for the poor immigrants that moved to the east end of Glasgow, uh-huh. uh, Catholic from, from Ireland. And so Rangers were founded with no religious bias, but then because all the Catholics in Glasgow started to support Celtic, all the Protestants started to support oh, Rangers. Oh, so by default, they'll, uh, they'll support the team that's not the Catholic favourite. Yeah, yeah, so they have their tribal tribal rivalry, really. So there is a socioeconomic uh, history about that, kind of like the maybe the Mets and the Dodgers or something like that in New York, I don't know. But uh, you've got colours, right? So yeah. which, which are the colours of which so Celtic are green and white, and Rangers are red, white, and blue. So if you're wearing green, you might not be comfortable in certain pubs. 
yeah, you'll see it in pubs uh, when you go in the door. It says no football colours or something. Just say no colours. No colours. You think what's that mean? But it's meaning football colours. You can't wear the football jersey or a scarf or anything. And, and why would a pub. publican not want colours? Because it can start a fight. It can start a fight. Yeah. A couple of beers, somebody says something yeah. wrong and you no, got, you got yeah. a brawl. No, yeah. no, it's not even getting to the stage of a couple of beers. If you walk down the street in green in a blue area, you'll be in trouble. You're serious? It's mm. the equivalent of gangs. Again, you know, you, you talk there about it being socioeconomic. It's not just in the lower levels of society. It's right through society, you know, right up to the highest mm. level. There is tribal. And is it tribal for the football team or is the football team the, the, the top layer of a deeper loyalty? It's got the religious connections, but I'm sure that most of the people that really get angry and violent about it, I don't think they're going to church on a Sunday morning. No. Because <laughs> so like I've seen tribal the fo- the football Irish... football their church. I've seen tribal Irish culture mm. at concerts in the United States. Right. And it's, uh, there's just this guttural, deep-down loyalty to mm-hmm. my heritage. And you might not even know why. Mm-hmm. And also... If you appreciate that Glasgow, because it's a large industrial or was a large manufacturing centre, over half the population of Scotland lived within a 50-mile radius of it. So you do have that factory background. Exactly, and And you also have a lot of poverty. So although there's poverty distributed across Scotland, Mm -hmm. there are pockets of the most severe deprivation. Mm -hmm. And so football gives an escape. So football can be... Tribal, as in yeah. gangs are tribal. That's right. Yeah. And it goes back to your dad was a hard-working, downtrodden mm-hmm. factory worker. The factory went out. Your family was without money. Mm-hmm. It was They happened to be Catholics, and the yeah. big boss yeah. was and Protestant. And generally, you're born into, you're born into the football yeah. team. You don't choose it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Liz Lister and Cullen Mayer. So we're talking about Glasgow and what's going on. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bob's on the line from Vancouver, Washington. Bob, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Glad to be with you. Yeah, what are your thoughts about Glasgow? My wife and I had a great time there. We happened to have a few days between a visit to Sicily and then when we had to be in Edinburgh to uh, attend a wedding, and so we decided that we'd take those few days and go see Glasgow and try and enjoy some music. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we liked was it's really easy to get around there. We stayed out in the Bella Houston neighborhood and were able to walk to the Rennie McIntosh House for an Art Lover, which is an incredible place. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. We were a 10-minute walk from the train, and then we also used the first bus app on our phones. We just uh, bought a pass that was appropriate for the time that we'd be there, and it was just hop on the bus, scan the um, barcode on our phone, and we got all over the place. Um, so you bought an app on your phone, essentially paying for a bus pass, and then you just uh, showed the barcode whenever you got onto any public transit. Mm-hmm. That's great, yeah. So, that's yeah, a- so the, yeah, the app was free. We just chose which pass we wanted. And then mm-hmm. on the app, there's also bus schedules and other information. Yeah, the all-day all ticket for the first buses. I say that with, with an all-day ticket, Glasgow's your oyster. That's a great thing, and that's a real mark of... I think that's a mark of a good traveler that mm. commits themselves to public transit. Nowadays, that also is mobile-capable uh, mm. uh, because so much is, is mobile, and, and mm. to get on, on the ball and take advantage of these things, you do need to use your, your smartphone. And, uh, Bob, you talked about the um, uh, Charles Rainey McIntosh uh, site. This was in at the near the university, isn't it, Colin? No, no. So no, the, the one that Bob was at, Bob, that was the one at Bella Houston in the park, yeah. 
the House of an mm-hmm. Art Lover. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a building yeah, that was... Yeah, it's on the other side. Yeah, it, it was so designed by Charles Rennie McIntosh, but not built during his lifetime. So it was built much more recently. Okay. Um, Let's talk so, about Charles Rennie McIntosh yeah. for a moment, because uh, a lot of people go to Glasgow for this, mm-hmm. uh, could you call it the Scottish Art Nouveau yeah. um, sort of uh, yeah. heartthrob among architects. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people love McIntosh. Yeah, so he was the turn of the century and Art Nouveau architect. Everybody would go to the uh, art school, but it... it tragically burned down. Well, yeah. So it had two fires. Uh, first one was 2014. That destroyed really the, the library, which was one of the highlights of the whole building. And then four years on, almost to the day, in 2018, had another bigger fire. So they're rebuilding really, it. It's quite, really a, quite a heroic yeah. effort to get the, the money to rebuild and then it burned yeah, again. Yeah, it's, it's, they have said they will rebuild it, but it's a bit of a controversial subject because some people feel that money should be spent in some of the poorer areas yeah. maybe of Glasgow, but... I think they will rebuild it, multi-million pound. So, Liz, uh, when you take a group or an individual to Glasgow to, with the interest in the architect Charles Rainey McIntosh, what are the top two or three McIntosh sites for you? Okay, well, absolutely, the Glasgow School of Art was the top building. In fact, it was known as the McIntosh Building, and critics around the world thought of it as one of the best buildings in yeah. the world. He's an iconic Scottish artist, and the library in particular was one of his best works, and so the students in Glasgow School of Art would give tours of the, the building. Nowadays, what they're working on so doing... So that's all gone. So that's we can't all do gone, that now. Exactly. So what, what remains if we're going to Glasgow now to, to uh, just get an appreciation of Macintosh? You have mo- you have buildings which were Macintosh designs, which are like um, the Lighthouse, which was the original Glasgow Herald building, um, Hill House, which is further outside Glasgow. But they're still working to try and get some legacy from his best work, the Glasgow mm-hmm. School of Art. So what they're looking at is um, 3D printing, and virtual reality, hmm. so that they're being able to give people a virtual tour of this magnificent library. And in fact, one of the lecturers who had worked in the library in his time, when he saw this virtual display, was actually in tears because he felt as if he was standing right that's, in the middle of the library. That's a beautiful thing. and It, it could be a, a hint of what's to come in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And Colin, uh, there, for me... The Willow, Willow Tea Rooms, I would say, is the, the best places room. you can go. It's easily accessible. It's in the city centre. It's on Sucky Hall Street. And they've just actually completed a, a renovation as well. So now it's back to pretty close to what it was like in Macintosh's time. And that's time. right in the it's, shopping district, the, the, Willow, Willow's tea room. the Willow Tea Rooms. But to be sure you're getting the right one, make sure you go to... Uh, it's actually now officially called Macintosh at the Willow because they had a trademark dispute over a couple of cafes that used the name Willow Tea Rooms. So, other so make sure you're going to the right like one, Macintosh the at the Willow. Bob, does that, uh, it sounds like there's a lot to see with dealing with Macintosh. Yeah, another place that uh, we went to that you haven't mentioned is the uh, Street School Museum. And uh, as a retired Scotland teacher, Street. that was pretty interesting to me, mm-hmm. uh, sharing the culture and also including the immigrant cultures that attended the school there as well. Mm-hmm. Nice. So much to see. Thanks for your call, Bob. Thank you. Our Blue Badge Certified Guides to Glasgow, Scotland are Cullen Mares and Liz Lister. Cullen leads summer group tours and customized whiskey tours of Scotland and Southern Hemisphere summer tours in New Zealand. Liz co-hosts a weekly podcast about Scotland called Scottish Blethers. You'll find links to our guests in the notes for each week's show on our website, ricksteves.com radio. Julie's calling from Lake Forest Park in Washington. Hi, Julie. Hi, Rick. How are oh, you? Great. What was that? What did you find unique about Glasgow? Oh, I just loved the street art. It was really unexpected. I had uh, I bookended a trip to the Isle of Mull with uh, two weekends in Glasgow, and my first morning, jet lagged. I took a walking tour, and we kept walking by all these 
fantastic murals. And so I, after the tour, uh, went and, and explored a little bit more on my own. And there are dozens of them. And there's a city center mural trail. And I was especially taken by uh, the work of an, an Australian artist who's living in Glasgow. And he goes by the... Um, the graffiti name of, of Smug, mm-hmm. and his, his real name is Sam Bates, but he has just fantastic murals all over the city. He has one on a car park that, uh, if you can imagine, um, you know, the length of maybe, I don't know, 50 cars, and it's four seasons, and it's all these forest creatures and, and animals in all four seasons, and it's just beautiful. Colin, I know you're enthusiastic about the street yeah. art. It's not we're not talking about tagging and graffiti no, here. We're talking about uh, serious yeah, art. Yeah, but. yeah, it's, uh, it's a city sponsored um, murals. So yeah, Smug, Smug's a great one. S M U G. S M U G. And uh, Rogue One is another one of the big ones. So how how would a works. tour? Uh, Julie mentioned you yeah. get a, a walking tour brochure yeah. from the tourist. Yeah, office. Yeah, you can pick up from the tourist office. It gives you the the route to follow, and um, there's there's new ones all the time as well. There's Beautiful one and, of uh, Saint Mungo, the, yeah. the patron saint of the city. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's Sean, Sean Mungo really is a looks like a homeless person. And he's got a, a robin in his hand, and that's one of the legends of Mungo that he brought a robin back to life. Mungo's the patron saint of the city. I remember there's one where um, this girl's picking up a little tiny guy. Yeah, that's, that, that was smug. That's smug as well. Yeah, and it comes with a that's, kind of a of a of a smug message. <laughs> yeah. What well, tell us the story about that? Uh, so that, so she's actually on a building which uh, houses a strip club. And so you could interpret, I don't know if Smug would agree with us or not, but you could interpret that she's maybe picking up a little man who's on his way into so the, or, just, she's, or she's, she's doing some other gesture with her hand, perhaps, to... The little tiny <laughs> men that go to, to the, the strip <laughs> to yeah. objectify the women yeah. of Glasgow. Yeah. And on her, on her necklace, it says the name Smug as well. All right. And Billy Connolly, just mention of him when we were talking about the Glasgow Pat earlier, um, probably people are familiar with the comedian Billy uh, Connolly. They did a TV documentary of him going back to see his mural on the wall of it and uh, if you want to sort of familiarise yourself with Glasgow and its accent before you visit then watch some Billy Connolly but be prepared we've said that Glasgow is gritty <laughs> and Billy Connolly himself says that he uses profanity like comment, like commas to <laughs> like, punctuate or like his, punctuation yeah. and his last in his name language, is Billy Connolly C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y that would be a good uh, a bit of uh, video well, to watch yeah, before yeah. you if go you're open, to Glasgow if you're open minded uh-huh. if you're, if you're uh, comfortable with different kinds of punctuation Glasgow, <laughs> Glasgow humour is very very gritty coming out of the shipyards other ones that you might want to watch still game and there is one which is absolutely superb if you're open minded which is an American voice activated elevator (laughs) and it's two Glaswegians in a new lift or elevator and they're trying to get to the 11th floor (laughs) and the lift operation doesn't understand 11 11 (laughs) there's so much fun we can have connecting and actually feeling like we're understanding a foreign language when we're actually speaking with people who speak English Julie thanks for your call you're welcome thank you okay this is Travel with Rick Steves we've been talking about Glasgow with two Scottish guides Cullen Mares and Liz Lister thanks so much thank you thank you Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Catton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 500 other radio stations. You'll find a list of when and where we're broadcast at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. 
Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.